Good morning, and welcome to the Council of American Ambassadors annual fall conference. In normal times, we conduct the conference in New York City, in recent years at the Century Club on West 43rd Street. However, to borrow from the Chinese maxim, we now live in interesting times and certainly challenging ones at that. As a consequence of the COVID pandemic, our conference today will be conducted remotely via Zoom. The silver lining in this remote remoteness cloud is that participation of an increased number of attendees and of our speakers is greatly facilitated. With the result that we will have participation today ranging geographically from Beijing to Florida, up the East Coast to the tri-state New York metropolitan area, and on to Boston, from Washington to Chicago to Salt Lake City and other points east and west. The Council is grateful to have with us today a substantial contingent of our ambassador members, as well as of our Annenberg Fellows alumni, of our Davis Fellows Foreign Service Officers, Glenn Davis and Kahina Robinson, as well as members of the Public Diplomacy Council. We also welcome Albania's former ambassador to the United Nations, Adrian Neritani. Today's conference will be like an opera in two acts. The first act will feature Ambassador Frank Wisner, and the second act, conducted by Ambassador Julia Chang Block, will be a technological marvel coming to us simultaneously from Beijing and Washington, featuring Dr. Wang Zhiji and Dr. David Lambton. Finally, Ambassador Philip Hughes will ring down the curtain and usher the conference to its close. With that by way of prelude and due to time limitations requiring that we dispense with an appropriate operatic overture, let us prepare to raise the curtain on act one. In reflecting on an appropriate title for it, I realize that those of us of a certain age will remember the long running television program as the world turns. That is an apt title for this morning's presentation by Ambassador Frank Wisner, the first Zoom iteration of his annual Tour d'Horizon for which we are perennially very grateful. Ambassador Wisner is a titan of American diplomacy, his distinguished career having spanned four decades during which he served eight American presidents. He served as ambassador to four major countries, sequentially Zambia, Egypt, the Philippines, and India, as well as Undersecretary of Defense for Policy and as Undersecretary under of State for International Security Affairs. After graduation from Princeton, Ambassador Wisner joined the Foreign Service. His first posting was to Algeria in the wake of its War of Independence from France, followed by four years in Vietnam at the apex of that war. Thereafter, he served in Tunisia and Bangladesh before returning to Foggy Bottom as Director of Plans and Management in the Bureau of Public Affairs. He served as Deputy Director of the Interagency Task Force on Indochina with responsibility for resettling a million refugees 
and later as director of the Office of Southern African Affairs, working closely with Secretary of State Henry Kissinger to conduct negotiations with Zimbabwe and Namibia. <clears throat> well after his retirement from the Department of State, in 2005, Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice appointed him as this country's special representative to the Kosovo status talks, where he played a crucial role in negotiating Kosovo's independence. There is no one more qualified than Ambassador Wisner to grace us with a tour d'horizon of today's world. Ambassador Wisner, as we turn the podium to you, returning momentarily to our operatic theme, as you served with great distinction as ambassador to Egypt, it would be more than appropriate to welcome you with a triumphal march from Aida. <laughs> Ambassador Wisner. Tim, how can I say uh, thank you sufficiently for a most elegant uh, introduction? I'm touched once again to be invited to address the Council of American Ambassadors, which includes so many longstanding friends. Julia Cheng Block, I'm particularly pleased to Am I unmuted yet? Yes. Oh, good. I'm so sorry. I'm not sure how far I got. Suddenly, I seem to be muted. Did you mute your? Did you mute yourself, or was this an, an exogenous force? An exogenous force. All right. Why don't you? Why don't you? You had just. You had just uh, uh, thanked me and Ambassador Julia Chang Block, and at that point, you went mute. So why don't you well, I, rewind? I was, I, I was indeed in the process of saying what a pleasure it is to be back amongst all of you at the Council of American Ambassadors. So many friends are present today. And I wanted to add a word of thanks, particularly to Kathleen Sheehan, uh, the executive director for her skillful organization of the event. Uh, you put before me, Tim, uh, the annual challenge of taking a look at the world um, today as we meet, um, we do so in the wake of the American election. Over just over a week ago, Americans uh, went to their polls and on the 7th of November, Joe Biden <clears throat> emerged as the winner. Uh, now the hard part begins as we try collectively, all of us, to join the president elect in overcoming the nation's very deep divide and beginning to bind up our wounds, to lay out domestic and foreign policies that will serve this nation's interests. So we wish Mr. Biden well. Uh, we recognize, however, that his hands will be filled, uh, managing a very fraught transition, addressing the challenge of COVID-19, of dealing with our most troubled economy, and in signaling our intention uh, to re-enter the international arena as a respectful participant, all major challenges. And while I suspect I join each one of you in knowing that the domestic challenges, domestic issues will dominate the early months of a new administration, 
uh, global challenges will enter the scene very quickly, literally day one. I can assure you and all of you, I believe, know it, that Joe Biden will be a foreign policy president. That is as a result of a lifetime of engagement and commitment in the nation's international diplomacy and interests abroad. I suspect as I take a step back, I join many of you in recognizing uh, some of the style and policy directions our new administration is likely to, to uh, pursue. Uh, first, I, I think it's without any doubt, and we've already seen it in the early words of uh, Vice President Biden, a change in tone, the, a tone of American foreign policy that will be less raucous, less confrontational, more respectful, more nuanced, that will not gainsay a continued strong commitment to America's defense establishment and armed forces, but it will indicate a bias towards diplomacy. The second change that I count on seeing uh, pursued is a much more professional approach, less by the seat of the pants and more policy as a result of deliberative processes involving the many stakeholders in Washington, bringing to forward decisions for the president to make once they've been reflected on. I also suspect that consultations with Capitol Hill on matters of foreign policy will be much more sustained and deeper. I expect third that the new administration will focus on re-engaging the United States with our core allies in Europe and in East Asia. I'm certain that our relationships with each will be less transactional. And then fourth, I expect a restoration of strategy, not necessarily more forbearance, but a restoration of strategy in our policies towards our adversaries, notably Russia, China, and in our dealings with Iran. I expect the United States to re-enter international institutions, the WTO, the WHO, uh, treaty obligations, and an explicit commitment to following the dictates of the rule-based international order. That doesn't mean that all of the foregoing is simply a continuation of the past. It's much more than that, but I'm certain as well the new administration will reach out on a global basis to address arms control, a critical challenge in the short run, cyber, space, but above all, the administration will pursue and the vice president in the lead, the subject of climate change, a huge civilizational issue for all of us. And finally, if I touch on the seventh point, is democracy and human rights. Uh, it's very dear to the vice president's heart and his, um, and his uh, newly elected vice president, not enforcement of human rights by American pressure, but more by suasion, by the collective example that we all would want to speak less by a sense of the use of force. Now, as I sit back with each of you and look at the 
pressing issues on the global stage today. I would take up the rest of your morning and intrude on other speakers if I tried to address all of them. But I will invade you in one sense and begin with what I believe is the greatest single challenge in American foreign policy, climate change, of course, the exception. And that is how the United States manages its relations with the People's Republic of China. I underscore that because I am persuaded and would seek to persuade you that you can't push China back, you can't contain China, you can't bully China, and attempts to deal with China with the imposition of sanctions and <clears throat> um, tariffs is simply not over the long run going to produce a strategically sound approach to China. For China has her own intentions and we do well to remember them. The current government in China, Xi Jinping's uh, party in power, the Chinese Communist Party and the president himself, their core determination is to maintain power and to reinforce their authority throughout the society and throughout the economy. To secure China's borders in that historic Chinese quest of over uh, the last uh, couple hundred years to develop China's economy by all means, some foul, many times fair, with an eye in recent times to focusing on China's damaged environment. But economic growth will remain a core conception moving into the fields of high technology. China will also seek to develop a world-class military capability in all fields, in space, in sea, on the land. Uh, and China will use that capability to defend itself, but politically it will seek to push the United States back uh, from the Western Pacific and develop around itself a cordon sanitaire behind which China can continue her development. China will insist and fuel with finance the, in her access, market access to global markets, one belt, one road is certain to continue with effect and China's global influence will be an objective of Chinese policy. China's place in international institutions will continue to rise. So as I take a step back in face of those realities, I say to myself, how do we deal with them? And that's the greatest challenge I know, managing the relationship with China. And I believe in time, uh, Vice President Biden will not uh, forego, forgive or set aside our disagreements with China. They're real, they're deep, and they're persistent. But I believe that he will, in effect, adopt three core strategies. The first, he will confront China where we have every reason to believe our interests and those of our allies are being imperiled. He will confront and push back uh, where China oversteps the boundaries. I'm thinking among others of the South China Sea and the High Himalayas. Um, second, I am certain that we will compete, compete competition, not only in <clears throat> dealing with 
high-tech uh, development, uh, but markets, competition for infrastructure development, we will compete. So we will confront, we'll compete. And the third aspect of the policy will be cooperation, for there are many grounds on which to build a sustained relationship with China, a multi-year relationship, and the the, co the cooperation can include cooperation in fields like the pandemic and in climate change, all of which are important. Our core goal must be not a short run, but a marathon. We will be in a long range uh, play to balance relations with China and to do so in harmony with our allies. So it's essential that we think of China not as a issue that can be solved in the life of one administration, but for many, many still to come. A word about China, a word about Russia. Russia represents also a major challenge. It has in recent years, the uh, intervention in Georgia, in South Ossetia, followed by Russia's intrusions into Ukraine. We now sit watching Russia's actions towards Belarus with wonder as to whether Russia in securing its periphery will once again resort to the use of force. There's no doubt that Vice President Biden is committed to standing up to Moscow and to doing so with our allies, doing so to reestablish some degree of balance. Uh, and I say that I say balance is an essential long-term goal with Russia because I believe that long-term alienation is not a sustainable policy. That does not mean giving in to Russia to the opposite. It means making it very clear what is important to the United States. And I suspect the vice president will conduct a stout approach again with allies towards Russia. We'll look for ways to cooperate, and there are plenty of them. And so the right strategy with Russia in my mind today is to see if we can strike a strategic balance with Russia, pointing out where we can cooperate and cooperate with Russia in those areas, in containing uh, the troubles in Nagorno-Karabakh as a signal that we, France and Russia in the Minsk group have recently been able to demonstrate. Uh, we need also to face the facts that we and Russia need to find some modus vivendi in the Eastern Mediterranean, Libya, and in Syria. Uh, but most of all, we have to keep an eye on the European front. And if I had to think of how we could cooperate with Russia and begin to have a strategic balance is to pick with our policies areas where we can cooperate. And none comes higher or more immediately to mind than renegotiating New START and joining that and beginning thereafter to face the long list of arms control issues, cyber and space. So there is an agenda for Russia. It does not mean caviling before assertions of Kremlin power. The third issue I'd like to touch on is Europe, um, for I believe that no higher priority will be on Vice President Biden's mind than the
the restoration of our alliance system, the strengthening or of our commitment to NATO. But at the same time, while we seek to re-engage, I think both we and Europe have an interest in greater European strategic autonomy. By that, I mean, we should look to Europe to carry more burdens, be they in the defense field or along Europe's periphery. Uh, the Mediterranean, the Sahel are clear examples. Um, but we also need Europe to uh, recognize that its own internal order has to be reinforced, particularly in the wake of Brexit, a painful process that we have to anticipate. And here, I believe strongly in the continued special relationship with Great Britain, but I am confident Vice President Biden will have his eye on the maintenance of uh, a relationship between the EU and Europe, particularly over Ireland, so that the Good Friday Agreement of which he was part of can be maintained. Europe will present a huge challenge internally and with us. Trade will be an early issue before us. I would count on us withdrawing our 232 tariffs, which I always believed were misbegotten, and to begin gradually to seek a free trade arrangement with Europe, which I recognize will be slow and painful, but important. Um, and it will represent great challenges to both sides to deal with agriculture and photosanitary conditions on um, how to deal with digital taxation, how to deal with financial service regulation. All of these are going to be challenges, but the way ahead has got to be towards a greater economic integration of the two sides of the, of the alliance. We will in all cases with our allies, seek using our market as a tool to punish or discipline. And I can imagine overall a much more judi judicious use of sanctions by American, by the United States government in the years and months ahead. Uh, <clears throat> fourth, I'd like to touch on the Middle East because I believe that it is once again despite the, uh, the uh, uh, dream of having the Permian Basin solve all our energy problems, the Middle East is returning to center stage as the place where a new multipolar global order is being worked out. We've seen it with the collapse of the Arab state system, the collapse of many Arab governments, the introduction of outside powers, Russia, now China, Turkey, Iran. We are in the period of sustained crisis and I see no early alleviation of that crisis, but I know where we need to start. And we need to start by sorting out our relationship with the Islamic Republic of Iran. And that means going back and taking once again a look at the nuclear agreement, the JCPOA, and recognizing that if we don't re-enter the JCPOA and strengthen it and bring Iran back into full compliance, we face a nuclear issue in the Middle East that upsets all calculations. It is dangerous, it's in course, and it threatens core American interests. We need to correct 
the nuclear problem. Second, we're sitting on a powder keg, either with Iran across the Gulf, American forces, Iranian proxy forces. We need a political basis on which to stabilize our relationship with Iran before it blows over and drags us into war. And third, it is important to deal with Iran on all of these fronts, not only because it's important for the Middle East, but it's a core feature of our alliance relationships. Europe wants to see America back in the game. So let me point out very quickly that that's not the full list of American challenges on the international stage. There are issues in Africa, issues in Latin America, all of which are front and center for this country lacks no, nothing else but real problems to be addressed. But at the heart, let me make an appeal to you. The purpose of our new administration must be the restoration of trust of the world in the purposes and tensions of the United States and trust in this country in the value of the international system, a real restoration of the view that foreign policy is important to our domestic well-being, to our core welfare and the future for our children and grandchildren. It is important that we move the United States, not only in our domestic eyes, but in the eyes of the world, from a position that we have enjoyed for many decades since the end of World War II, into becoming a lead player but not a dominant player in the international system and aim to help create a consensual international system that recognizes longstanding rules of engagement like the Treaty of Westphalia's balance of power. We will maintain an active foreign policy out of our own interests. Force should be our last resort, diplomacy, vigorous diplomacy, the commitment that all of you made with many years of your lives has got to be front and center. And with those words, let me stop and turn the floor back over to you, uh, <clears throat> you at the council. Thank you very much. Well, Ambassador Wisner, uh, uh, thank you very much for today's Tour d'Horizon, uh, which has been, as always, a true tour de force. Uh, as we await uh, questions coming in uh, from our participants today, let me ask the first question. Frank, can you hear me? I can indeed, Tim, go ahead. Wonderful, 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 because my screen doesn't indicate that. Let me ask, let me, let me kick off with the first question. I know that there are other uh, questions in the queue, but the council has a particular interest at this time in the Balkans. Indeed, we had a, uh, a member uh, trip to the Balkans, a mission to the Balkans uh, scheduled in collaboration with the Council of Albanian Ambassadors. We were to visit uh, Albania, uh, Kosovo, and uh, Montenegro. Unfortunately, as a result of the pandemic, that mission is now in uh, suspended animation, but we hope to be able to, we hope to be able to resume it uh, up the road, probably not in 2021. I'm thinking we'll probably have to wait till 2022. But 
Given your background uh, with the uh, Kosovo status talks back in 2005, how do you assess uh, the current situation in the Balkans, I'm, I, particularly with respect to Serbia and Kosovo? Right, Tim, that's an important question. And let me make a, an appeal that it, when you do conduct this mission and you need somebody to carry a briefcase, I'd love to come along and join you. Um, I'm fascinated by the Balkans. I believe they are vital of vital significance uh, in the field of American foreign policy because we made a commitment many years ago to a Europe whole free and secure and with a roiled Balkans, that objective has not been achieved. Uh, despite a number of events and agreements and undertakings since the end of the, of the war that settled the future of the former Yugoslavia, uh, the region remains deeply troubled. It lags economically behind the rest of the Europe. It is a particular victim of youth flight, populations across the region, young people are fleeing because they see no prospects for their future. Corruption, misgovernance are common features and European integration has proceeded very slowly denying hope for much of the region. The assumption that I brought to the table when I was invited to come to the region by Condoleezza Rice was that the United States was a partner with Europe and that we couldn't do the Balkans alone. It had to be a partnership of which we could bring security and diplomatic elements. Europe could bring security and economic elements and together we would have an effective political approach. It has been deeply disappointing to me over the past four years to see Europe and the United States split apart in the Balkans, each of us pursuing different courses and not in consultation with each other. And that is a core fact that has to be addressed and returned to. We cannot succeed in the Balkans in dealing with its problems or in facing challenges from Turkey, which are severe, from Russia, which are more severe, China, which has decided to enter the region if we don't do so in common with our European friends. Now, the issues are real. You put your finger on one, on, uh, <clears throat> on the question of Serbia and Kosovo, but don't leave uh, Bosnia off your list for the Dayton Accords have really run their course. Uh, they no longer offer a political framework for maintaining the rivalries that are inherent in the Bosnian system. Between Serbia and Kosovo, we've yet to achieve a state under which they live one with the other in calm and good order. I don't mean that I can aspire to Serbia recognizing Kosovo's independence. That's a bridge too far. Nor can I imagine Kosovo forgiving Serbia for its many acts of violence against uh, Kosovars and Kosovo itself. Those are all acts too far. The right American policy and European policy is to address the economics of the relationship and bit by bit seek to create 
dialogue and communications between Pristina and, uh, and Belgrade, not try to leap for big conclusions, certainly not try for border changes, which can only upset the Balkans already nearly unbalanced apple cart. So the right way forward is with Europe. The right way forward is a bridge builder with an economic bias and the right way forward is American engagement. Those themes I'm certain you will find. I know that the Serbs and the Kosovars are coming back to the table these days. I'm not too hopeful. The government in Kosovo has become very weak uh, and nationalism affects both sides, but you've got to keep at it. And that's the nature of Balkan diplomacy, patience and persistence. Let me follow up, if I could, with just a, a quick question. To where are they coming back to the table, or at what, at, in what venue are they coming back to the table? I believe there were, or there were supposed to be conversations at, at the White House and at around the same time in Brussels. Where will those conversations between the Kosovars and the Serbs continue? Uh, they are, and they need to go back basically to Brussels. Uh, Europe is in the strongest and most affected position and needs to be at the heart. We need to be nudging from the outside. Uh, Washington, and certainly not for political reasons, needs to be front and center. That doesn't mean we can't invite leaders, give our word of support to Europe, give advice to the leadership, but the European agenda we need to help shape and Brussels is the right venue. There were, there were conversations, uh, meetings involving uh, at the White House, uh, involving Ambassador Grinnell. And I, I believe that he was involved in reestablishing a commercial air link between uh, Pristina in, in Kosovo and uh, Belgrade in, in Serbia. How would you evaluate or assess any progress that was made through those efforts? Or was there any meaningful progress? Uh, there was limited progress, but let me start. Uh, what I believe, and I will repeat, was the core mistake in the strategy we pursued was our the differences between our approach and that of Europe. We lost that ability to act in common. And that was a policy decision taken into Washington, in Washington, one with which I agree. Second, uh, it was uh, Washington's determination, Grinnell's was at the point of it, uh, to uh, make certain that uh, Kosovo and Serbia came together and in Washington under an American sponsorship. And when the government of the day in Kosovo bridled at the conditions that were being laid out, we made it very clear that we didn't like that government and we were part of bringing about its downfall. That I think is the wrong American policy. We have no government we favor or disfavor in the Balkans, we need to get the parties that be back together again. So not interfering in other nations' affairs in the Balkans is a key imperative. Third, we dabbled with the idea of border changes as a way to get a grand slam bargain and only happily learned that that would have produced a grand slam disaster. And finally, fell back on economic factors and there the administration ended its play. And I believe it did right, 
not only air agreements, but customs of opening the borders. Um, we've made commitments to Serbia to open a new office of our uh, development assistance uh, function. These are all the right steps forward, but they must, Kim, let me underscore, be done in unison with Europe. And we need to reestablish a strong and effective common policy with the European Union. Well, thank you, Amb Ambassador Wizard, for that comprehensive uh, response and overview of the Balkans. And when we, uh, when we eventually uh, do return uh, to, to this hoped-for mission to the to the Balkans, uh, not only would we uh, value your input, and you're certainly more than welcome to uh, accompany uh, us. I'll be happy to carry your bag uh, for you. Would be the would be the the appropriate uh, <laughs> protocol here. But we certainly will absolutely revert to you uh, when we when we do move ahead. We're, we're working very, very closely with uh, with the Council of Albanian Ambassadors, with the Ambassador Gensi Mukaj and the uh, and the President uh, of uh, of Albania, Ilir Meta, have been very very helpful to us. And we will turn. Uh, we will turn to you as uh, as well on this side of the Atlantic. So, with that, let me let me uh, turn the questioning back over to Kathleen, who's been collecting, uh, collecting or receiving uh, questions uh, off stage, and uh, I will exit stage left, and uh, she will uh, she will articulate the questions to you. Great, we have at least three questions submitted so far. So I'll start with the first one. It's from Michael Anderson, who is joining us as a member of the Public Diplomacy Council. And he says, Master Wisner, how do you see the incoming administration dealing with press freedom, handling daily press briefings in both the White House and the State Department and strengthening public diplomacy generally? Good, do you wanna give me the other two questions? Sure. We have um, uh, Dr. Wang Ji-su, who's gonna be speaking on the China panel next, has asked you a question. And he said, you discussed China and Russia separately. How do you see the quasi-alliance between China and Russia that is challenging US supremacy in a coordinated way? And the third question is from Ambassador Todd Sedgwick, who says he wholly agrees with you about the importance of reviving the JCPOA. What is the best strategy for bringing the Iranians back to the table? Good, those are excellent questions. Um, Kathleen, let me answer them in the order they were placed. First, Mr. Anderson, um, you know, I, I know is part of the style of of the vice president and of this administration, uh, the defense of press freedom will be uh, full-throated. Um, the vice president is talking about a strong human rights agenda of which press freedom has got to be a vital feature. He's talking about convening uh, perhaps a, a conference of democracies to send a signal to the world that um, liberal democracies are not going to give up ground to authoritarian um, systems of government and that we have our own principles and we believe those principles produce a better form of human society. Press freedom is central. And so I imagine throughout uh, the play of the administration, you're going to see 
an emphasis on press freedom where it's curtailed, you will hear the administration speak out very strongly. I can also assure you that a vigorous public diplomacy internationally will be part of the administration's strategy. Uh, we have uh, good instruments in place. The present administration developed and used them, but we will aim to depoliticize some of them. For example, uh, I regret the direction that's been taken with the Voice of America. As an example, it needs to return to neutral hands and leave the partisan fray. Uh, it, our public diplomacy should literally begin at the water's edge uh, and uh, our partisan divide stop there. So let me uh, say only one more uh, important point, which I tried to make in my open remarks. The difference between the American conception going forward of human rights and that which emerged rather sloppily in the waning days of the Cold War and thereafter is that the United States cannot afford, cannot afford to promote its view of human rights with force, with sanctions, uh, with a sense that we are entitled to force other nations to our way of thinking. We can set the example, we can build alliances, but the use of American pressure and force, economic or military, should not be part of democracy, human rights promotion. Feel that very strongly, and I suspect it will be part of the Biden perspective. Second, um, to uh, Dr. Wong's uh, excellent question, uh, Russia and China have grown progressively together for two reasons. They share lots of common interests. Um, Russia offers resources and materials that China needs for its continued economic development. China offers Russia technologies and capital that Russia needs to strengthen its economy. But both, as Dr. Wang has pointed out, have found it, found themselves the object of American ire and have agreed in broad principle to counterbalancing the United States in the international system, counterbalancing by combining. Now, this is not a healthy place for the United States. And Dr. Wong, let me speak to my American friends and remind all of them that in the days in which we normalized, our relations with the People's Republic of China under President Nixon and uh, the stewardship of Dr. Kissinger, uh, we found ourselves in the wonderful position of being closer to Moscow and closer to Beijing than either were close to each other. That permitted us to pursue American interests and the loss of that ability is a serious drawback for American diplomacy. If you ask me what I believe is important in our strategic approach to Russia, it is to reestablish some American agency with Russia so that Russia doesn't have just one choice any more than China should have one choice. We all, given the challenges we face, 
should have multiple choices in order to maintain balance, which deters violence, promotes more positive international, a more positive international framework. Finally, Todd uh, Sedgwick, thank you for your question. You ask one dear to my heart. Um, I believe it is, as I said in my remarks, vital the United States come back in to the JCPOA for the three reasons I gave. Um, and the way to come back in is straightforward. And that is, and it's simply stated, uh, the term of art is compliance for compliance. We come back into the JCPOA full stop and reverse the actions we've taken since uh, we left the JCPOA uh, at the second year of the administration. Iran comes back in at the same time and reestablishes full scope compliance with the requirements of the JCPOA. Compliance on our part with the JCPOA, full compliance on the Iranian part. That will give us uh, both a way forward. Now, I'm not going to pretend, Todd, that that's easy. Uh, their opponents to reestablishing relations with Iran um, in our Congress, both on the Republican and some on the Democratic side. And then we have to be very careful in the way we reassure our allies in the Gulf who continue to operate with the fear of Iran as an existential threat to their existence and to Israel, which has deep and prevailing concerns about, about Iran. So it's a multifaceted approach dealing with those with concerns and dealing with allies and reestablishing the international framework that the JCPOA put on the table in the first instance. It means backing away from the profligate use of American sanctions, which I regret to say is being doubled down on in the last days of this administration to no particular use. For if I look back over the last four years of maximum pressure against Iran, I can score no progress on the part of the United States. We've lost standing with the treaties or the understandings participants, Russia, China, and Europe. We've lost standing internationally. The regime in Iran has not changed one whit, and the Middle East is no calmer for our actions. And so I can appeal to you as practitioners of American diplomacy if you've tried something for better than three years and it's a proven failure, you better turn around and do something differently. And going back to the JCPOA is the best way to do it. Um, Kathleen, do we have further questions? We don't have any more questions in the Q&A box. I would ask the audience if you have any questions, uh, we do have time for maybe one more, but there's nothing there at the moment. I have, I have one further area on which I would uh, like uh, Ambassador Wisner to, uh, to touch, uh, and it, it comes from, obviously, from Asia. Uh, the U.S. exited at the start of the, uh, the, start of the current administration, exited the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Uh, what is your assessment of the outlook for uh, return to the Trans-Pacific Partnership and uh, I think it would be helpful for many of the participants if you could articulate what the Trans-Pacific Partnership is and what the benefit would be to the United States of, of 
re-engaging with the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Good. Um, Tim, thanks. That's a great way to wrap up our session. Um, I'm, I'm uh, single-minded in my view that when I look back at serious mistakes in American foreign policy, the exit from the Trans-Pacific Partnership stands among the very highest. And while it was executed by the Trump administration, it was foreshadowed uh, in the campaign rhetoric of Hillary Clinton in the 2016. So both sides of our political house deserve uh, condemnation for a particularly serious move. Trans-Pacific Partnership was an understanding on both sides of the Pacific, North America, Latin America, and in Japan and Southeast Asia, Korea, to open a common area of economic activity and trade, greatly reduce barriers to economic exchanges. It would have had a huge economic benefit to the United States. And we negotiated furiously and obtained concessions from the participants in the partnership on matters like uh, <clears throat> uh, labor rights and environmental protections, uh, all of which we managed to literally force down the throats of the other participants, some against their better instincts on terms advantageous to us only to have the United States walk out at the end of the day. But even that said, the economic benefits being very clear, Tim, I would add the political benefits were as great or greater. And that is it would have put the United States into a deepened set of political relationships with all of the nations of the Pacific Ring. And it would have sent a very strong signal to China that when we say we want to protect our interests and deal with China on a fair and balanced basis, we'd have done so with a much stronger hand. And we lost that opportunity. Now, can we go back? Since uh, we walked away, uh, participants in the Trans-Pacific Partnership have met and reestablished much of the grounds of that partnership on their own. So the United States can't just walk up to ring the doorbell and say, let me in. Uh, the uh, terms with which we negotiated in the past uh, are going to have to be looked at again very carefully. We're going to have to come back in a bit hat in hand and meet standards. And I don't think it's going to be easy. Um, I really don't believe that we can expect to be welcomed back in with open arms. And there'll be trade conditions. Uh, there'll be a core condition, which I tried to address in my very last remarks, a core condition that will affect all of us who care about political or economic or security diplomacy in the years ahead. And that is the need to restore trust, trust in America, trust in our word, trust in our ability to make and keep agreements, trust in our respect for international institutions. That rebuilding of trust may not be fully appreciated of what damage we've done to that vital and fragile commodity in the last four years. Do you feel, do you feel that the incoming administration would be inclined to approach 
the participants and the trans the existing I participants and, and seek to return to yes, interaction? Tim. Yes, I, I do. I believe that. But what I'm trying to say is that between design, intending or wishing to be back inside and actually getting there, um, there is a bit of difference, bit of a distance between cup and lip. Exactly. Those, those are the words I, that ran through my mind before you, before you articulated the cup and the lip and the many and the, the many a slip. Well, Ambassador, thank you very much. This has been a wonderful morning, as always, with you. And we, we greatly appreciate your, your insight, your, your, your wisdom, and your many years of experience in the field of diplomacy. And with that, we'll, we'll bring this uh, session of, the, of our conference to a close. We hope you'll return next year. We hope you'll counsel yeah, us in our, preparation, in our preparations, in our hope for preparations to go to the, conduct a mission to the Balkans. We'll look to you for, for, for guidance and, and, and wisdom. And with that, let me turn uh, the, uh, the podium over to Ambassador Julia Chang Block. And, uh, Welcome her aboard with uh, her collaborative effort between Washington and Beijing. Ambassador Bloch. Thank you. Thank you. Good morning, everyone. And thank you, Ambassador Chorba. Well, US, uh, as Ambassador Frank Wisner, uh, in his wisdom, just said, in his, as usual, brilliant tour de horizon, the greatest issue facing us and the Biden administration is how we will manage the relationship with China. Well, we have with us this morning two of the world's most respected experts on China and the US. Wang Jishi, director of the Center for International Strategic Studies and former Dean of its School of International Studies uh, at Peking University in Beijing. And David Michael Lampton, Professor Emeritus and former uh, Director of Science China and China Studies at Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies. Well, can you believe that next year will mark the 50th anniversary of Henry Kissinger's secret mission to China, which began the normalization of relations between Washington and Beijing and China's reopening to the Western world. Instead of celebration, however, the bilateral relationship has entered a period of profound discord and faces challenges fundamentally different from those of the past five decades. No country has risen as quickly as China from 2% of global GDP in 1980 to some 20% of global GDP in 2019. The United States, since its rise to global power has never confronted such a potent peer competitor across so many areas, political, economic, technological, military, and even societal. As China has grown stronger and stronger, US policy towards China has had to adjust. There is no precedent for a relationship between two powers that
that are so deeply interdependent, yet such opposites in ideology, values, and practically every other way. The policy of engagement that has defined U.S. approach to China since Washington and Beijing normalized relations in 1979 has been largely discredited. Much of the American policy elite today agree that the U.S. got China wrong. Events have disproved the expectations of those who assumed that engagement would lead to China's economic and political liberalization and its transformation into a responsible stakeholder, remember that term? Stakeholder in the US-led international order. Some see a Cold War, a new Cold War, or worse, as likely and perhaps even necessary. As we move towards a new administration in the US and enter a new era of major power competition, we could not have better guides than Professors Wong and Lampton to help us understand the persistent and intractable challenges that the US-China bilateral relationship will pose for the US and the world in the coming decades. I will not take up more precious time except to say that our speakers whose bios you all have are both clear-eyed, fair-minded, and thoroughly knowledgeable as well as wise in their understanding of the wide ranging and globally important issues in US-China relations. Ladies and gentlemen, we're in for a terrific discussion. Before I hand off the mic to Professor Wang Jishu, let me invite all participants, uh, really all attendees, please send in your questions. We welcome them and we welcome you being with us and joining us. So now, Professor Wang Jishu, it's all yours. Thank you very much, uh, Ambassador Julia Chang-Lok. I feel greatly honored and privileged to participate in the Council of American Ambassadors 2024 conference. I learned a great deal from uh, Ambassador Frank Wisner and others. I will take my uh, time to address uh, three points. My first point, China has benefited enormously from the engagement and cooperation with America. I think Ambassador Zhang just mentioned that America also benefited from the China cooperation, but I will focus mostly on China. The Communist Party took power through a violent revolution in 1949 when the PRC or the People's Republic of China was founded. The US and PLC confronted each other <coughs> politically and militarily without any economic ties. The two powers fought a war in Korea for three years with hundreds and thousands of casualties on both sides. Both declared victory, but in fact, they were both losers. The Korean War was followed by two decades of China-US military confrontation in Vietnam and over the Taiwan Strait. There were no economic ties and humanity changes until Richard Nixon visited 
1972 and the year before Kissinger went to China. After the two nations established diplomatic relations in 1979, the same year when China began to embark on reform and opening, China gradually repudiated the Soviet model of development and China's economy grew rapidly. My generation of Chinese experienced the hardship and poverty during the Mao years. Owing to Deng Xiaoping's reform policies, I became a college student in 1978 at the age of 30 and began to learn English and international affairs. Before then, I did physical labor for 10 years altogether in the countryside, being a shepherd, a peasant, and a factory worker. My father was a distinguished professor. He was persecuted and tortured during the Cultural Revolution, and my whole family suffered. Our lives improved enormously in the reform years, and our eyes were widely opened. In the 1980s, I spent some time at Oxford University and UC Berkeley and befriended American colleagues like Mike Lampton. It is not only the amassment of material gains, but also the liberal ideas that have changed China internally as well as in foreign relations. Without China's cooperation with the United States and the Western world at large, China's wealth, social progress, and happiness of the people would be unthinkable. The improvement of China-U.S. relations co coincided with China's decision to modernize the country. It provided impetus to bilateral economic, technological, educational, and humanitarian cooperation that changed China's destiny. The speed, depth, and scope of China-U.S. ties have exceeded the expectation and the imagination of my generation. In fact, despite political obstacles, admiration of modernity, thirsty for knowledge, and friendly feelings toward Americans have driven millions of Chinese to do business mm -hmm. with Americans and to study in America. More than 5 million ethnic Chinese are now living in the United States. Among them, 2 million were born in China. My second point, China-U.S. relations have never been easy sailing. Differences in history, culture, political system, and natural interest, uh, national interest prevent the two countries from becoming close friends. The relationship went through dramatic twists during the Cold War from being forced to being quasi-allies. In the post-Cold War era, it has gone through ups and downs among several serious crises. For one thing, the U.S. imposed sanctions on China after the Tiananmen uh, tragedy in 1989. Ever since the founding of the People's Republic of China, the Chinese leadership has harbored a strong distrust that the United States 
always attempts to undermine or overthrow the Communist Party leadership. Beijing has been trying to block U.S. political and ideological influences and conducting propaganda campaigns for a, a patriotic education that inflame nationalistic feelings against what we see as U.S. schemes to interfere in China's domestic affairs. The bilateral disputes regarding Taiwan, Hong Kong, Xinjiang, Tibet, and human rights are put in that category in China. In the past two years, U.S. officials like Vice President Mike uh, Pence and Secretary of State Mike uh, Pompeo harshly accused China of human rights violations and rhetorically tried to separate the Communist Party from the Chinese people. These criticisms have further convinced Chinese leaders of America's ill intentions. On the U.S. side, as you know, and as uh, Ambassador uh, Wisner mentioned, there are increased concerns that China wants to drive the U.S. out of Asia by sober rattling activities in the South China Sea, and that China's unfair trade and technological policies are harming U.S. economic and security interests. Since the mid 2010s, China-U.S. relations have been failing, falling into a downward, downward spiral. The deterioration seems abrupt to many uh, observers. In fact, it has deep-rooted causes. First, in the past decade also, the world has faced with a number of serious challenges that affect domestic politics in both China and the United States, giving rise to populist nationalism that blames other nations for its, its own internal failure. Second, the Communist Party under Xi Jinping has successfully tightened its control over society and economy. Beijing has carried out domestic and foreign policies that frustrate Americans who wished China to move in an opposite direction. In turn, the hardened U.S. policy toward China marked by the trade war launched by President Donald Trump, along with the anti-communist rhetoric by members of Congress and the Trump administration officials, triggered tough reactions from Beijing. Third, and more importantly, the power equation between the two countries has moved drastically in China's favor, especially after the outbreak of the COVID-19 pandemic that hits the U.S. much harder than China. Beijing believes it can now be more assertive in foreign relations and defiant against U.S. pressure. The Americans, of course, do not want to give up their primacy in global affairs. The ominous prospects of the power contention with a plausible bipolar or bifurcated world order in the next decade loom large. The mainstream view in both the Democratic and the Republican parties now defines the U.S.-China relationship as one of strategic competition 
China refuses to use the analogy of a new Cold War and hopes to maintain stability in the bilateral ties. But Chinese strategists are holding little illusion about US strategies to keep China down, regardless of who is in the White House. Beijing is prepared to for Beijing is prepared for long-term rivalry with the United States and calls for what is known as a fighting spirit or a strong determination to resist US pressure. My third point, China and the United States should engage each other in a benign competition. To be sure, some people in either country think that they need an enemy country to keep their own country united and to serve other political purposes like the maintenance of a large defense budget. Some others argue that national security considerations of override economic interests and an economic and technological decoupling in the bilateral ties is necessary to protect domestic markets and the indigenous production chains. The above notions are in a way logical and reasonable and are consistent with the so-called realist school in international political studies. But to me, they are narrow-minded and lopsided. A further deterioration of the overall China-US relationship will harm the interests of both China and America, slow down global economic growth and bring about a more turbulent world. The US-China competition is real, but we should engage each mm -hmm. other in a benign competition to see each other go to, to see which government serves the people better, which country makes its citizens and other and, and their environment healthier, and which country contributes more to world peace and uh, and prosperity. A malign competition instead would waste our time and resources in an arms race, put the next generations in jeopardy of a deadly confrontation and lose opportunities for collaboration in scientific research and technological uh, innovation. Meanwhile, there are ideational competitions going on in the world globalism versus nationalism, universal values versus parochial outlooks, progressive thinking versus fatalism, foresight versus short-sightedness, short-sightedness, radicalism versus toleration, integration versus fragmentation, and democratic ideas versus absolutism. Chinese and U.S. diplomats have no choice but to side with their own government in the ongoing strategic competition, which is what they, they are, but this is what their political position is su supposed to be. However, they are free to take side in the ideational competitions, as I described, and make changes to the relationship. The COVID-19 pandemic and the artificial restrictions to travels and visas 
have deprived millions of Chinese and American citizens of their opportunities to interact with each other, with each other in person. This will result in many undesirable consequences. I hope, and I think Mike Lampton and Julia Chung Locke will surely join me in hoping that the positive engagement between China and America will be resumed before long and continue to benefit our two peoples. Thank you very much. Thank you, Dr. Wang Jishu. Mike, now the mic is yours. <laughs> thank you very much, uh, Julia. And uh, I want to thank Kathleen Shaheen for the, um, Shian for the, um, introduction and uh, invitation to be here and thank Julia for not only the introduction but her long service. I also want to thank all of you for your service to America both in the past and ongoing uh, service. Uh, finally, I just want to say a word about what I think you just heard from Professor Wang Ji Su. We've been uh, friends for going on 35 years. And I think you've just heard a set of remarks that is absolutely candid. Uh, I believe he would have said this, whatever audience he was talking to. Uh, and uh, I found myself in great agreement with what he had to say. So I had my own remarks structured, but I think we just heard a remarkable uh, presentation to which we should pay a great attention. Uh, also, I think uh, this shows the utility of uh, dialogue. Our state-to-state uh, -state dialogue between the United States and China is in, uh, put it delicately, in a great state of disrepair. And I think we need to get our responsible people in both countries together talking in the constructive mode that uh, Professor Wong just uh, articulated. Also, I want to say a word uh, about uh, uh, Secretary um, um, Wisner's, Ambassador Wisner's um, uh, remarks, because I think those were remarkable for their clarity uh, and wisdom. Uh, and as far as I could uh, extract, and I'm certainly just um, summarizing what I thought I heard him say, is he said America needs a strategy. And he gave us the three components of that strategy. Certainly one is uh, strive for a balance of power. And uh, these are my words, not dominance. Balance of power, not dominance. I think that's a, a first element of a wise strategy. Wouldn't propose to speak for the Biden administration, but the people I know that are going to be involved, I think that captures uh, their tendency. Uh, secondly, uh, that the United States should focus on increasing its own capacities. Ambassador Wisner raised the issue of infrastructure, but this applies across the board, R&D, K through 12 education. Instead of belly aching about Chinese success or anybody else's success, we need to compete more effectively. I certainly agree with that. And finally, we need, at the same time, we recognize the conflicts of interest as Professor Wong himself did. Uh, we need to realize there are opportunities for cooperation and we need to behave much more multilaterally. And so I think what Ambassador Wisner had to say uh, in its essence, if I've correctly summarized at least part of it, uh, is right on. And uh, I think 
that provides a uh, at least more constructive basis to move ahead uh, with, with China. Now, all that I didn't uh, start out intending to say, but is my reaction to what preceded me. I, I want to really want to make three points. I think there's substantial overlap with what Professor Wong and Ambassador Wisner had to say. And I want to just make three points, take three or four minutes for each, uh, and then we'll get to the Q&A, which I think should be very productive. First thing I want to talk about is how we got to where we are in, an, in effect, uh, where and address the question of, of where we are and how we got there. Uh, secondly, I want to emphasize the point that Professor Wong made, and that is, as we assess how we're going to behave in the future, let's not forget all of the gains we made in the last 40 years. I would say, broadly speaking, American foreign policy towards China in the last 40 years has been a remarkable diplomatic and human success. Now, we're in new problems, a new era, and new Chinese leaders, new American leaders, the environment is different, many things are different. But at the same time, we look to an uncertain future, let's remember how we made some of the gains that we have made over the last four decades. Uh, and finally, uh, I think uh, we need to uh, send each other some um, uh, constructive signals. We are in a transition period in the United States. Decisions are going to be made. And I think it's very important, uh, particularly for China at this moment, given the sequence of uh, our changing uh, domestic situation to send some positive signals. And unfortunately, in the last few days, we're not seeing positive signals here. Uh, and once we institutionalize a new direction, it's going to be all the more difficult to get onto a more productive path. So I think we need to think about how, we, if, if we can, how we can move in a more positive direction. Now, uh, how did we get to where we are and indeed where are we? And first I would say that maybe the master variable in what I would call the deterioration of US-China relations since 2010 has been the deteriorating security relationship. My basic view would be when people or countries or individuals or organizations are concerned about their security, they organize themselves to make that the primary value and subordinate other values, whether they're economic values, cultural and educational exchange, those become secondary. And the master problem that we've had is our security relationship has deteriorated. Uh, I mean, if you just take the easiest kind of frame on this, Nixon went to China and talked to Mao Zedong because we were both worried about the Soviet Union and that set a strategic basis for cooperation in other areas. And as you just heard uh, Professor Wong say and ask uh, uh, Ambassador Wisner, the relationship between Russia and China is improving. And of course that creates anxiety in the United States. And I very much agreed with what Ambassador Wisner said that you know, in the past, we could have better relations with both Russia and China than they could have with each other. And that's what we ought to be striving for. Now, we can't unilaterally deliver that condition, but that ought to be the objective. So I think we have to then uh, reestablish our security dialogue. There's been virtually no meaningful security dialogue between the United States and China in the last three years. And, and, and 
uh, in all fairness, the uh, second Obama administration, while they had dialogue, it wasn't very strategic uh, in character. Uh, the uh, next thing I would say is that there's a perceptual dimension and, and Professor Wong uh, mentioned this in his remarks. And that is, uh, I would say, going back to the Asia financial crisis, then the global financial crisis of 2008, 2009, and now the American handling of the COVID, uh, is that China really sees itself as ascendant, ascendant. He didn't say that, but I think that's at least what I interpreted, uh, and that U.S. power is declining. And frankly, I think not only China, but certainly China included, pay attention to perceptions of power. And if we want different behavior in the world and more cooperation, we need to get our domestic house in order, increase our power equation. At the same time, we do many of the diplomatic things and prioritize diplomacy, uh, as we, uh, as Ambassador Wisner pointed out, and I think was implied in Wang Jisoo's uh, remarks. Uh, also, there are other reasons this relationship has gone. Uh, I would say on a downward, uh, rather steep slope. Uh, certainly it has to do with the, the convergence of what I would call two strongman leaders, each striving for dominance, uh, not listening necessarily to all of the advice we wish they would listen to. Also, you have rising global inequality and inequality in both our societies that feeds nationalism. So uh, the first thing is that I think we have a very strategically precarious relationship with China, an arms race is underway, and that's the central problem. And as long as we don't address uh, that effectively, we're going to find great difficulty in improving other aspects of the relationship. My second point is that as we enter this period of conflict, let's keep in mind all of the successes we had with the past policy. There's, there's a kind of storyline now that the last 40 years was a mistake. Well, if you look at all the decision points along the last 40 years, I think we made on broad, both countries, broadly speaking, wise decisions. Now we're at a point where China's much stronger than anybody, including in China, expected. And the United States has, quite frankly, made a lot of mistakes that has not improved our leverage. Uh, but these are uh, possible to be uh, addressed. But the place to start is, well, what were some of the, the successes? What have we accomplished in the last 40 years, because if we move in a different direction, we're going to lose a lot of those kinds of opportunities for uh, mutual advancement. And, and so what were some of those successes? Think about civil aviation. China basically had a, uh, a dangerous um, uh, civil aviation circumstance in 1976 and 77. And the FAA and the CAB cooperated with China. Of course, we had commercial interests. Boeing now sells, what, one out of six aircraft goes to China. Huge success. China has one of the safest um, you know, domestic air, international air systems. Uh, that's a huge gain for all the millions of people traveling. You look at poverty in China and Professor Wong pointed to that China's progress would have been much more difficult without US-China 
cooperation, cooperation in the World Bank. China moved 500 million people, according to the World Bank, out of poverty. Huge human rights uh, uh, gain there. Uh, if you think uh, about just the absence of war, I, I live right near the National Mall and walk there every day. I go by the Korean War Monument. I go by the Vietnam War Mon Monument. I go by the World War II Monument. You look there, all three of those conflicts importantly uh, related to China. One, the, our cooperation in World War II was a positive example, but certainly Korea and Vietnam were direct and indirect conflicts. Since the 40 years since Nixon went, we've had no U.S.-China conflict. Huge gain. Uh, so uh, I think whether you look at it in terms of economic uh, integration, uh, and then you look at cultural 350,000 American students or Chinese students in America, $13 billion in tuition they pay, a, a godsend to American universities and not to boil it all down to money, research and development uh, in American universities and Chinese high tech interested students coming in great numbers in math and physics, research assistants, TAs, a huge benefit. Now, in all candor, there are some problems there, technology leakage and uh, other things of concern. So I'm not saying there's nothing to be worried about here, but on balance, I would say a huge plus. Even in the past till we got to COVID where it's been notable for non-cooperation, in past epidemic cooperation, uh, in particular uh, in the whole H7N9 virus in 2013, China was actually in the lead cooperating with the CDC, the NIH, developed a vaccine for this very high mortality virus and was actually a very good partner. I was sad to see the what I would call not very good cooperation on COVID-19. And I, I do think China made some substantial mistakes there. And finally, uh, the third point I really want to just briefly mention is that as we enter the Biden uh, era and as China enters an important period in its domestic history, particularly in 2022, we, we need to uh, uh, talk about, uh, uh, you know, how uh, policy is going to be made here. And I think one of the big benefits that we're going to see, and I think Ambassador Wisner briefly mentioned that, is that we can expect a more professional, uh, more data-based uh, policy process. I think, at least with respect to China policy, and I think it's much more widespread than that, the interagency process in the U.S. is broken down. Uh, and in short, we're not uh, in coordinating internally. We've had a kind of uh, a foreign policy by tweet where there hasn't been bureaucratic buy-in below. Uh, and then policy has jumped around as uh, sort of the mercurial leader uh, varies uh, his attitudes from day to day. I think uh, there'll be a great improvement in a predictable, fact-based, professional, and also, he, 
I think Biden will uh, fill the positions that need to be filled. Uh, it was a remarkable not only turnover, but how long it took the uh, Trump administration even to staff out itself. So the long and the short of it is, is I think we need to uh, pay attention to these th three, three points. Uh, it seems to me that there are some opportunities for cooperation, even as we move into this more competitive era. Uh, it was raised in a question, the TPP. Now that's a pretty heavy political lift in the US. But on the other hand, I, th I agree with Ambassador Wisner, we made a mistake. We ought to seek to get involved in that. Obviously we ought to get back as Biden has already suggested we will into the WHO. Uh, we ought to also uh, rededicate ourselves to at least trying to revitalize the WTO. We ought to, uh, and then finally, uh, I think we ought to uh, recognize what China's doing in infrastructure building around the world, most importantly in Asia, and uh, get as involved either as our own singly as our country or form consortia with allies and friends to begin to build out connectivity around the world. That's what I would call balanced connectivity, not to oppose China, but to facilitate our own connection to the growing areas of the world. So thank you very much for listening and I look forward to the conversation. Thank you very much, Mike. Uh, while we give Kathleen some time to sort through the questions, uh, let me see here. Uh, wh why don't I give uh, Professor Wanchi a chance to uh, react to Mike's uh, remarks because he had a chance to really respond to yours. Um, so, Jishu, especially Jishu, where uh, we have the question of how do we get here on U.S.-China relationship? How how did it come to this point from the Chinese perspective. What's the point from here? I can hear you clearly. You How do we get here, right? Uh, remember, one of Mike's points had mm -hmm. to do with how did our relationship get to this point? From the earlier years, the 40 years of engagement, uh -huh. how did we get to this point? And I wonder whether you agreed with uh, Mike. I, I think there are three reasons why the Chinese-US relationship deteriorated in those past, past few years. As Mike mentioned, but I, I'm hesitating to say that because I had a discussion with my student whether this is true or not. Uh, we always say, well, China is catching up with the United States, China-US, uh, the gap between China and the United States in, uh, in, in, in economic uh, security power and so on and so forth has been narrowed remarkably. So we should have more confidence in dealing with the United States. And the US, the, the, the United States is, is scared or in, uh, unconfident uh, and so on and so forth. So that's, is that the reason? So I, I thought about then the Korean War and early periods of our confrontation where when, the China, when China was much weaker than the United States, was we still had the confrontation with the United States. 
So this might not be the main reason why the U.S.-China relations deteriorated. So I point to the second reason, and probably the most important one, that is there are domestic politics uh, in both countries that are worrisome. Um, in China, as I just uh, referred to, uh, there are small uh, state control of the economy, and you know it's very obvious that uh, there are uh, less tolerance to uh, dissension, uh, and uh, uh, people are not very satisfied with the unfair uh, distribution of wealth. Uh, the rich between the, the gap between rich and the poor is widening widely. So there are a lot of problems in China, uh, and uh, uh, all these problems are related to U.S.-China relations. So we have complaints about U.S. practices and and uh, and uh, high-handed policy toward China. But we also have our own problems. That is, I could spend a lot of time talking about China's problems, but the U.S. has also its own problem, it's very similar to China's. Uh, the gap between the rich and poor, and also ethnic uh, tensions. We have ethnic tensions in China as well, but we don't feel that strongly we, in Xinjiang in Tibet. And we have identity problems in, uh, in Taiwan and Hong Kong and some other places. So these two political situations uh, you know, can, uh, are reinforcing each other. So we blame each other for, for our own problems, as I referred to in my opening remarks. That is made probably the main reason and the third reason is both countries, uh, both the United States and China, are not simply nation states per se. They say, they feel that they present something much larger than, than that. The Americans think they are representing the free world uh, and uh, Christian civilization, Western civilization, and then China now is growing up saying we are representing the developing world. Uh, we are resisting real as cause. Uh, we, we represent the future of, of the world because China is growing so uh, fast. So we should, we should be proud of ourselves. This is not simply China. We should be proud of Asia or East Asia or the, you know, the so-called Eastern civilization. So all these problems reinforce each other and make this situation less uh, controllable. Because we are, we, we we feel that we are we are stronger, and you, you know, we say the United States is declining. But in fact, I don't think that it's declining. Yes, of course, if you compare that with China, every other country is, decli is declining. Russia is declining. Europe is declining. Japan is declining. So everybody is declining. Or China is rising up. This is our feeling. But that I don't think it, it is is the correct understanding of world politics. I should stop here. Uh, Mike? Uh, just uh, to say, I think uh, she's, what I said and what Jesus said uh, can be uh, made consistent, which I believe they, they are consistent. When I said security is the driver, I didn't mean just military security. I meant economic insecurity, cultural insecurity, a, a broad definition of, of insecurity. And that leads 
it, and then Jesus said, it's domestic politics in both country driving. I agree. But domestic politics in both of our countries relates to both our insecurities, in our case, perhaps right at this moment more, and China's sense of opportunity. So I think, yes, domestic politics is key. And all political systems, it seems to me, have what I would call uh, you know, uh, people that are focused on mobilizing fears as a political strategy. It's an important way to build support. So until we get this a, a sense of more mutual security, I think we'll energize the opportunistic elements in both our society to emphasize fear. So, uh, so I don't. I at least didn't perceive much difference between the implications of what I was saying and what I think Professor Wong said. Well, let me follow uh, up. Me, I think. Uh, one Kathy, one thing. Is, oh, go ahead. Go ahead, Jesus. Uh, yeah. When we talk about security in China, as uh, our top leader uh, uh, mentions, the most important security is regime security. <laughs> that is the security of the leadership. <laughs> and so, so we are very much afraid of U.S. interference in China's domestic peace in Xinjiang, Tibet. And this is a, a central issue in China's concern about the United States. And that will not be dispelled even under the uh, in, uh, 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 Biden administration. Uh, let me follow up as I think Kathleen is still gathering uh, uh, questions. Um, on the issue of domestic politics and uh, its effects. Um, as you know, we are in a tra presidential transition and presidential transitions are perilous because we here in the United States have a total change over of government with 4,000 political appointees to change from the outset. And this transition has not been normal, uh, with uh, President Trump refusing to concede, with his order to government agencies to not cooperate with the Biden landing teams or transition teams, with his firing of uh, uh, Defense Secretary Esper, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, I want to ask both of you, this is a period of vulnerability for uh, the United States. Jisa, do you really not think that the Chinese government will take advantage of this vulnerability and perhaps make some kind of move on Taiwan, for example? Only an example. And Mike, do you think that President Trump will take further provocative, provocative actions, uh, perhaps if not with China, but in foreign policy generally to basically um, disrupt, further disrupt the incoming Biden administration. So who would like to start? I, I, I think this is a, the, the, the central question, you know, concerned about the United States in the last few months before the inauguration uh, on uh, January 20th, that is, the Trump administration might take more provocative actions against China. Uh, it might, for instance, strengthen military ties with Taiwan. It might be even more uh, 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 
is even stronger in attacking China's policy toward, uh, uh, toward Xinjiang, uh, calling it the general side or something like that. And also it could uh, harass Chinese diplomats in the United States or arrest some, some Chinese uh, so-called spies. So they are, they are, they, we are worried about that. About that. Uh, but also we are worried about the long-term future of the U.S. China relations. So people here are watching very closely to the election and to the aftermath of the election. Mike? Um, I, I guess I'd make three points. First of all, I see it to be a dangerous situation actually that A, we have to ask this question but it seems to me that both sides right now are afraid the other in some way is going to preempt, Wang Jisoo didn't use that word, or let us say make uh, initiating moves to try to either take advantage of a situation or prevent the other from moving. So it strikes me as the question and, and uh, Professor Wang's answer indicate we're both kind of worried about the preemptive predispositions of the other at this moment. So that seems to me to be a very important policy, which means that I think both sides should be doing their best through all the channels they have, including this channel and non-governmental channels to try and reassure each other. That's not gonna be easy, but reassurance is the job here. Uh, so that's the first thing I would say. Secondly, I started my comments on a fairly critical note saying uh, I've been frankly disappointed that China hasn't yet uh, congratulated Biden on what I think is a victory. That doesn't breed confidence in, in at least in the upcoming government, I would think. Uh, secondly, China's moved very dramatically in Hong Kong that are just not going to generate American support or uh, to put it mildly. And it looks, you just even look at the major papers today in the US talking about China taking advantage of the US current disorder or perceived weakness or distraction or however you wish to put it. So I think, you know, I and, and then you look at recent uh, uh, just the recent conversation recently between the, the Prime Minister of Japan and I understand Biden, a concern about uh, the U.S. treaty obligations to Japan on the uh, Senkaku, Jiaoyutai uh, Islands and so forth. So it seems to me that uh, China, and I'm not just trying to blame China for everything, but China is not reassuring the U.S. And this is an initial experience that is going to structure what happens down the track. So I think we ought to get on a better track real soon. Uh, I guess the uh, last thing I would say is the, the moves in the US, and I don't have any special knowledge, but I, I did know a Secretary Schlesinger quite well and when Nixon left office at the end, they were very worried about, uh, let's say, his uh, state of mind and what could happen. And th there were responsible people in the bureaucracy who took measures to make sure you couldn't have unilateral action. Well, I hope we've got such people, but it seems in the last day or two, 
two, you know, you've had the firing of the Secretary of Defense, not reassuring. Uh, and you've had the recent hiring of an individual that isn't, at least in the defense community, inspiring great confidence. So I wish I saw more, uh, let's say, firewalls in the situation here. So I think we ought to all be very careful. Jason, unless you want to respond, I think Kathleen is ready with some questions. There is one uh, question on Hong Kong. Kathleen? Uh Yes, um, yes, there are. First of all, let me uh, first go to the question from Ambassador Hughes. Um, and um, this one says, um, it's understandable that at this time of US transition, um, that there is a tendency to accentuate the positive regarding the prospects for the US-China relationship, but there's been little mention of four major irritants in the relationship. And the four he lists are one, China's technology theft in industrial espionage, espionage. Um, two, um, unfair non-reciprocal investment in market uh, accession conditions. Three, um, the artificial and unlawful expansion of China's EEZ in the South China Seas via the artificial islands. And four, China's unilateral acceleration of the UK-China arrangement uh, turning over in Hong Kong. So he's listing those four irritants and asking you to address those. Jisa? Yeah, yes. I think you need to start. Oh, these are irritants, I confess. But uh, these are dif difficult to be solved. Uh, I, I, can, don't, I don't have time to go on one, one after another, but, uh, you know, uh, Mike Lampton also mentioned, you know, the uh, uh, problems in our educational exchanges, the suspicions that some uh, Chinese uh, spies are working in the United States, and so on and so forth. I think the Chinese government denies all that these charges without any uh, any any real uh, re reassessment of the issue. And the South China Sea, I think. Uh, there is a, a, an immense difference between the two sides on uh, whether the South China Sea, uh, it, it, China has any special rights over those islands and uh, the adjacent waters uh, near the islands. And there is dangerous confrontation between the two sides of the South China Sea and also uh, near Taiwan that uh, the Chinese are in our uh, mindset, in our interpretation, we are we have been very careful not to uh, in in uh, provoke any crisis with the United States. And the Americans said the same thing that they are very careful. They are they, they are restrained in their action Chinese provocation. As Mike Lampton just said, you know we are worried about each other without. It, a detailed and substantive discussion of all the issues. I know, I know these are irritations and these are problems, but now we don't have the channel to discuss them. Who will talk to whom uh, in, in, on both sides? I mean, because partly, at least partly because of the pandemic, there are the government-to-government uh, -government, uh, in, uh, uh, interaction is almost completely cut. Uh, and all, this is 
on top of that, there's a suspicion on both sides about each other's intentions. So I think both sides are uh, not interested at this moment to talk about these specific issues, also solve these specific issues. I'm worried about it. So I hope that when Biden comes to office, there will be some more direct linkage between the two governments to sit down and talk about all these problems. Uh, one thing I would like to mention is that Mike said, uh, uh, you know, the Chinese have not sent their congratulations uh, for good reason, I think. One very, very strange thing is that in China, in the social media, there's a dominant voice saying, uh, Trump will fight back, will win back the election, and he will drive uh, Biden out. Uh, that is, uh, some people say this is definite, have no doubt about it. So in these few days, every day I'm fighting with those rumors and, uh, and very unfounded rumors, but that they are still there. Uh, I can have many you know, interpretations of why there are so many uh, by the uh, uh, Trump supporters in China. Out of proportion, there are more Chinese supporters of, to, to, to Trump in proportion to American supporters to, to, to Trump. Uh, this, this is very strange. This is very peculiar in China. But that makes some, uh, some obstacle to the improvement of U.S.-China relations. Uh, and because you know, people in China have some reservations about the Democrats, and in, you know, in traditionally Democrats are more, the Democrats are more, more, more critical of China's human rights, and then Hong Kong comes out. Uh, and it, to, 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 to China, the Hong Kong problem is China's domestic politics, and you know, the, the unrest in Hong Kong and demonstrations in Hong Kong, as we saw last year, had an important impact on China's internal politics, as if China did not you know, deal with its crisis just successfully. So now Beijing is fighting back, saying we, are, we have high-handed policy to address those issues. So we have no, you have no right to complain about it. And the same thing can be sort of, uh, said of Xinjiang. Uh, so I don't think China will make any concession over the, over the Hong Kong issue. Um, I guess I'd say a number of things, Ambassador Hughes. Uh, first of all, um, uh, all of the issues you raised, uh, Hong Kong, technology, reciprocal trade, um, the whole issue of uh, uh, EEZs, uh, artificial islands, South China Sea, all of those issues. Of course, uh, in some sense, I did mention uh, some of those. But I wanted to, in the short time I had available, emphasize that while we have all these problems, and I did say security was the main, and a broad definition of security, which I include economic security, uh, is the driver of our problems, and, and then the domestic politics to which that gives rise. Uh, but I did want to draw attention to that we have a, at least a theoretical window of opportunity. I'm not sure how real that window is, but we have a theoretical window to at least do something each to try to reassure the other uh, in areas where reassurance is at least a uh, plausible uh, um, option. So that was my um, motive. I, I would add, however, to your list of worries 
and from the U.S. complaints. Uh, and I know China will uh, has its uh, counterpart view, and that's the issue of Taiwan. If you're thinking of all the things that could actually lead to kinetic conflict between the United States and China, it's it's a miscalculation or premeditation or preemption uh, in the Taiwan Straits, both diplomatically and in terms of uh, force uh, dispositions and so forth. And frankly, there's been a uh, erosion of what has historically been called the, the one China policy. Uh, China feels the US is backing off it. Uh, and uh, while it has uh, all sorts of problems associated with the one China policy, uh, it at least had the virtue of a, a lack of clarity that both sides could live with. And uh, we may need to manage that situation with the utmost care. So I would add to your, your list, not subtract from it, but I certainly wasn't ignoring those issues. I was just simply uh, putting them under a bigger um, subhead. Kathleen, do we have any more questions? Yeah, there's another question here. This is from Michael Anderson of the Public Diplomacy Council, and it's for both of the panelists. And he says, the current US administration has quite recently implemented a series of measures to regulate China's so-called soft power, like media, education, and cultural connection and engagement with the US people. Have these steps worked and should a Biden administration continue them? Probably Mike can say more about that. Well, whether our, our, our propaganda is effective in the United States. Uh, personally, I don't think that is very effective. And, uh, and uh, the, the recent uh, public opinion polls indicate that uh, the mutual image between China and the United States is deteriorating in both countries. We have less supportive of U.S. policies and you have less supportive voices on, uh, on China. So that is the reality. That is the, the mutual perceptions uh, are not as good as before. And probably that will endure for some time. I guess my uh, general approach uh, would be that the United States comparative advantages in the world of, of ideas and innovation and bringing together the best brains in the world to our shores, both for um, study. In many cases, many of the foreign students stay on and found um, startups. Uh, that the United States has a huge advantage. While we may have our problems, uh, uh, we have the advantage of immigration and openness to new ideas. And so as a general matter, I would start from the proposition of limiting cultural exchange. And, and of course it involves what you might call political influence operations that comes with the territory. But the US for many years, as you all know better than I had the USIA whose broad mission was to sell America's story abroad. All countries do that, or at least affected countries. So I think, uh, you know, we, we ought to have a pretty wide latitude uh, of uh, permissiveness. Now, when you start getting to high-tech labs and uh, S&T, that particularly has relationship to Defense Department and, and security concerns, I'm not unmindful of that. I'm not unmindful that National Institutes of Health fund research and don't like it being stolen, 
right? So we, we've got, I'm not talking unlimited, but I think our bias ought to be towards openness because that's our comparative advantage. So, you know, after that, you have to go sort of issue by issue. Listen, our I time think- is almost up. Uh, before I turn it over to Ambassador Philip Hughes to, to uh, conclude our program, I have one short question for both of you. Uh, Mike, you brought up the, the, the issue of power equation. And Jishri, you talked about idea, uh, ideational competition. I, wanna, I want to ask both of you, is the rivalry between the US and China primarily about power or ideology? And we can then basically wrap up. Mike? Well, uh, I, I think it's for different people, the dimension of competitiveness about which they're worried probably changes. So there's probably not one uniform view. But if I was putting on what I would call my Chinese ears, listening to the American system talk to itself, of all the things that's happened most recently, perhaps I'd be most worried about Secretary of State Pompeo's July 23rd speech that talked about China and the free world. Well, we all know where that vocabulary uh, came from, but it elevated really, it seemed to have implicit, at least in my reading, uh, the idea that until China doesn't have a communist party as a ruling entity, it's gonna be very difficult for our two countries to cooperate. I think that to me was sort of the bottom line. And I think if we're waiting for the Chinese Communist Party to be a precondition for improved relations, for them to somehow leave the scene or become less salient, I don't see that day. So I think uh, you know the current government has made a very unwise policy of demanding systemic domestic change as a precondition for what you might call meaningful improvement. So maybe I misunderstand what Secretary Pompeo meant, but I'm pretty sure that's how the Chinese looked at it. Jisoo, you're gonna have the last word. I I think we have to live with the reality that China's power will continue to grow with all these domestic problems and foreign policy problems. And the United States hard power and material power also will continue to grow because of your, your uh, technological innovation, your talents, and so on and so forth. So we have to look at the longer future. The problem now is, uh, as I see it, is that the soft power of the United States is declining very sharply in the past few years, partly due to your domestic politics and partly uh, due to the isolation you are faced with in international affairs. I'm not going to attack anybody for that, but it is a reality in China that people do not look at the United States as no longer as a, a beacon for democracy or whatever. So in the past, as I alluded to, it was an example for China to follow, you know, democracy, human rights, uh, 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 individual rights, and, uh, and, and so on and so forth. But people now have more doubts about the attractiveness of the United States uh, uh, system. Look at your elections. Uh, do we have to follow that? Look at your, as, uh, at your racial relations. Do we have to? Fo- do we want to follow that? So, 
I, I emphasize that both countries have their domestic problems to deal with. So before we talk about U.S. Chinese look at ourselves and improve our, our own domestic problems. And then we talk about the bilateral relationship. On that note, uh, let me thank the speakers particularly, and CAA, particularly uh, Kathleen and Joyce for uh, putting on this uh, terrific conference and this uh, really wonderful panel discussion. So Ambassador Philip Hughes, where are you? Uh, Now the mic is with you. Thank you very much, uh, Ambassador Block. Uh, and I don't want to, uh, to be redundant, but to ring down the curtain on this morning's conference, uh, I have just a, a very few uh, things to say. Uh, first, a few things typified the Trump administration's foreign policy than its pugilistic approach to China. Vice President Biden's candidacy and likely his entire administration uh, are likely to be designed to be a complete contrast to the Trump approach. So this morning's discussion couldn't be more timely as we think through the implications of the US transition for this key relationship with China. Uh, Kathleen, I'm sorry, Julia Chang Block has already done it, but let me more fulsomely uh, on behalf of the Council of American Ambassadors express our profound thanks to Ambassador Frank Wisner for his always insightful tour d'horizon of uh, uh, global issues uh, and the global situation, uh, and our president, uh, Ambassador Tim Chorba, uh, who uh, 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 is uh, successful time after time in securing Frank to open these fall conferences. Uh, I'd like to thank especially Professor Wang Jishu and Professor Michael Lampton, as well as Ambassador Julia Chang Block, who I'm sure uh, had an important hand in, uh, uh, in inviting them, seducing them, if you would, to address us this morning, and to our Executive Director Kathleen Sheehan and her uh, fairly new uh, Communications Director uh, Jocelyn Young, for their help, their, all their hard work in planning and conceptualizing uh, today's proceedings and, uh, uh, and putting this very informative program together. Uh, the note on which I would end is simply this, that I hope that a year from now, we will have sufficiently overcome the COVID-19 pandemic I'm always reminding myself that COVID, after all, stands for Chinese origin viral infectious disease, Uh, so that we'll be able to resume safely uh, our traditional holding of our fall meetings, uh, our fall conference uh, in person in New York. Uh, The onset of the pandemic uh, has uh, made that impossible. I hope that uh, in 12 months time with a a new vaccine or vaccines uh, soon to be available, it appears uh, we may be able to return to a bit more normal life. Thanks so very much and uh, congratulations on a successful conference.